Well, it is good to see you, good to be back with you, and uh, I invite you to turn to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Now, you might remember, for those of you who have been with us through this study of Ezra and Nehemiah, that we finished with verse 6, and so we're going to drop into a point in history now that follows the timeline. If you look this up, you will see that right after chapter 6, it takes a break. Um, we hit the pause button and we go to the book of Esther, an incredible application of the providence of God. Uh, so for those of you who have not been with us, uh, let me remind you of where we are in the history of Israel and why Esther is such an important book. If you'll remember, and if you don't remember, I'll tell you anyway, the Jews have pretty recently returned to Judea after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They return in three different waves, and the first wave has just returned to Judea under a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. They have rebuilt the temple. They have established the worship at the altar all the way through chapter 6. Now, again, the pause button is hit right here. A lot of times, if you're just reading through this, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it. But there is about a 60-year period of time before a second wave of refugees returns under Ezra. And then we finish Ezra, and then we go to the book of Nehemiah, and that's when a third wave of refugees will return. Now, as I said a minute ago, we're, we're dropping in this study of Esther, an incredible book, a significant story in the life of the Jews and of the world. It, it tells of redemptive history. Now, let me just give a, a broad overview before we actually try to tackle the first chapter. The book of Esther, in, in one sense, is a classic story, and we're going to see some of the elements here in a minute. It's the classic story of a somebody falling from grace and becoming a nobody. I'm talking about Queen Vashti. We'll meet her in just a few moments. And then further, it is a story of a nobody, we're talking about Esther, being elevated and becoming a somebody. And this story really has it all. It has opulence, intrigue, betrayal, all of the romance of a Hollywood movie. And in fact, it has been made into several different movies. But church is always, it's much more than that. As we're going to find out in just a few minutes as we read through the first chapter, there are some very pivotal characters in this story, in the timeline of Israel, and in the timeline of history. There's Ahasuerus, otherwise known 
by his Persian name, Xerxes. There's Vashti. We already mentioned her a moment ago. There is Esther or Hadassah, her Jewish name. There is Mordecai, her cousin, who was raising her. And then there always has to be an evil villain. And there is one in this story, Haman. But let me just say this, and I think you know exactly what I'm about to say. These are not the main characters of the story. The main character of the story is God. And I hope that I can communicate some of the reality out of the book of Esther. Because if there is one message that guides us in the book of Esther is that it is a beautiful picture of God's providence. It is a powerful statement. This is for us, not just for a group of Jews that lived 3,000 years ago. This is for us that It is a statement that God, listen to me please, and and, and put this into your own life's situation right now, that God is always present even when he seems to be absent. And there's been debate. I'm not going to get into all of the debates, but there's been debate as to whether this book even belongs in the canon of Scripture because it never names the name of God. And that is by design, I think, that God is doing a work. He doesn't have to have his name mentioned in order to do a work of redemption, and that is providence. We're going to define that in just a second. His providence is always purposing, and it's always directing, and it's always protecting that work of redemption. I, I love, I, I looked at several different common commentaries and, and different kinds of books, and the, the title that I love best, I was tempted to steal it and use it, is God in the Shadows. Let me give you a picture, a New Testament picture of the providence of God. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. By the way, the providence of God is just found all the way through the Bible. But Paul, in in his writing of, of, of how God sovereignly predestines and ordains the salvation of his people, he says this, and this is one of the best scriptural definitions of divine providence that there is, that that and obviously this is dealing with our salvation, but I wanted you to focus on just this portion of it. Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Have you got your, uh, your outline in front of you? You see the quotes? Okay, great quote. I'm going to give you a couple. The first one is the more technical definition of the providence of God. And you can look at any of the confessions of the faith or the great catechisms like the Heidelberg Catechism, but I'm choosing a good Baptist confession of faith, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith in chapter 5 of divine providence. Here's what it says, God, the good creator of all things, that's where you start, in his infinite 
power and wisdom upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now, again, that's rather technical, so drop down to the second one, and let's hear what Jerry Bridges says. A little bit more contemporary way of saying it, he nails it. He says, we may say that providence is God's orchestrating all events and circumstances in the universe for His glory and for the good of His people. Let that soak in. God foreordains. I'll use the word out of, out of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Faith, whatsoever comes to pass. Ephesians 1.11 again, according to the counsel of His will, for His eternal purposes and glory. Another person defined providence like this. I, I, I like this. God's attention concentrated everywhere. Do you know people that are good at multitasking? I do. I live with one. My wife is a classic multitasker. She can just do so many things at once and do them all well. Listen to me. God is the ultimate multitasker. How can God's attention be concentrated everywhere at the same time because he's God and we're not. Now listen to me. God's sovereignty by his providence positioned each detail in this story. And here's the thing. I've been praying that each of us would hear this he is sovereignly positioning you here in this congregation, you who are listening at home. He is sovereignly positioning every detail in your life. If we leave Esther just as a story 3,000 years ago, we have missed what God intends for us to get. And it's a mystery. I. I've been studying this for weeks now, trying to get my, my mind wrapped around this incredible truth. Did anyone have anything that happened in your life last week that just happened? Well, that's kind of the way we look at it sometimes, don't we? Let's go back to, I'm going to give an illustration out of Ruth. By the way, there are only two books in the Bible that were named for women, Ruth and Esther. Divine providence was at work. Now, in Ruth, there's more of a mention of God. A lot of this we're not going to get into until next week. 
the character of Esther, the, the, the reasons why there is a difference in Ruth and Esther. But I, I love this because it says in the book of Ruth, and if you'll remember, we preached through this last year, the book of Ruth. And there were things that were being woven together just in a marvelous way. And one of those things was she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And, and you just go on with the, the things that were coincidence. Now, did Ruth just happen to come to the part of field belonging to, to Boaz? Yes, she just happened to come. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> but later on, we get a, a feel from Naomi. You have to wait until the last chapter because Naomi exclaims not what we would exclaim. When something happens providentially that's good in your life, and sometimes we just exclaim, Wow, what good luck. <laughs> or maybe if it wasn't so good, sometimes we exclaim, oh, what bad luck. But here's what she said. She said, blessed be the name of the Lord because he has ordered these things to do what? To preserve the line of of the Messiah. It all has to do ultimately with redemptive history. So here's a question for you. I, I don't know how deeply you're going to think about this. I just asked a minute ago, did something just happen in your life this last week? Well, I wish I could see into your minds right now. Some of your minds would be just racing along. You'd be pulling out these details. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe it was just a minor thing, a major thing. It could have been some news that you received. It could have been something that happened in a relationship. And I could just go on and on and on. But here's the question that I want you to ask. And this sets us up for the study of the first chapter and the rest of Esther. How have you responded to the details that just happened in your life? Here's what I want to say. I, I asked a minute ago last week, how have you responded to the details that happened in your past? Maybe a long time ago. Have you been aware of a... I'm talking about consciously, spiritually aware that there is a God in heaven and who lives inside of you who is ordering all things providentially for His glory and for your ultimate good? And do you further realize, oh, please hear this, any of you, any of you who is frustrated with some of those details, or you're anxious, or you're depressed, again, with your current situation or with your past, 
or with what's happening in our country or with what's happening in the world around us, your level of frustration and anxiety and distress and even depression will be in direct proportion to your understanding, or maybe I should say misunderstanding, of the sovereign providential control of God over all things in your life. That's the point of Esther. That's the point of the Bible. And, and it's so easy to read and to be theological about that and to sing and be theological about that, but to pull it close when you're hurting and to understand that there, there is a God who has ordered the things in your life. Can, can I, may I say it again? I know I can. May I say it again? God has a purpose for everything that he has allowed in your life. God is with you. In our Awana class, we have been discussing and discovering things about God's omnipresence and his omniscience and his omnipotence. And those are nice theologically sounding words until we pack them into the things that we're going through. He is everywhere guiding, sustaining, protecting all things for the accomplishment of his perfect plan. And by the way, your belief in this or your disbelief in this doesn't make it more or less true. But your disbelief in this will drive you deeper into despair. Every church in our country ought to be studying the book of Esther right now <laughs> so that we can apply it to everything that is going on around us. So, how can this little book about a nobody who becomes a somebody, a somebody who becomes a nobody, how can it encourage your life? Um, it won't show up until chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but I, I heard a lot this week, and in fact today, I think it's today, there is a global summit, and here is the word that is used, existential threat. You can probably tell from my tone of voice what I think about that. These folks were facing an existential threat threat. In fact, just turn over to chapter 3. Before we even get to chapter 1, oh my goodness, we've got the Lord's Supper to take in everything. How am I going to get through this whole chapter? We will. Uh, Esther chapter 3, and just drop down to, you talk about an existential threat, and that's, that's why to, to see how God uses flawed people 
and even pagan kings to do his work, that ought to be one of the greatest encouragements to you and me. Drop down to about verse 18, I think it is. Uh, uh, there's a whole lot that's gone on with, with Haman, the Agagite, and there's a lot of stuff that, that we'll get to uh, later on as we introduce him later uh, in, in our study. But uh, we come up to a place where it says in verse 13, 13, 313, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. By the way, that included Judea. So it included Zerubbabel, who was in the line of the Messiah, remember that, with instructions to destroy. Now, he uses three words. He's trying to get a point across. They're not just going to slap the Jews on their hands. Look at this. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Boom. You talk about an existential threat to the history of redemption. If God were not providentially moving here, we wouldn't be here. Well, yeah, we would but by another means. We'll get to that later. All right, let's go on because we've got a lot to go through. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to try to read. Forgive me if I bobble the names of some of these people. I'll do my best, but we need to read through this, and I've got uh, what? One, two, three, four, five. And I've used, I looked up in my thesaurus, uh, anonyms and synonyms. I like doing that. And so, to, to outline this, here's what I want to show. God's providence works in the midst of man's foolishness. I don't care if that man is the most powerful man in the world. And so, I looked up words that were synonyms of the word foolishness, and we're going to talk about the folly of thinking that you're Lord of your life in the world. The absurdity of unfettered pride in created things. Oh, the insanity of drunkenness, intoxication. The stupidity of listening to man's unwise counsel. And last, the lunacy of thinking that you are in control. Let's tackle these. Esther 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus. I just love the way this is written. By the way, there is humor and there's irony in this book. Okay, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital of Persia. Look at how the king, Xerxes, that's easier to say, and his reign are described. And look at what God thinks about that. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, helps us to put it in perspective. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the transient glory, so-called, of man who has no, listen, who has no thought of God, who gave him everything, and who expects him to be a steward of what God has given. 
That's all of us. I, I look around, I look at myself, and we are, we, we are privileged people. And you know who gave us all of that? God did. And we are responsible, but life lived with no notion of what God is given is absolute folly. To think that you and I would actually, and, and, and this is talking about a pagan king, so just try to relate now. To think that anyone could believe that they are Lord of their lives. Or Lord of the world, for that matter. And yet, have you bumped into anyone that you thought might have that kind of attitude in the last little while? Maybe a family member, maybe someone you worked with that really thought they were Lord of their lives. They thought they were Lord of their world. Let me say it like this. You are responsible for your choices, okay? All right? But you are not ultimately in control of your life or the world. So how did Ahasuerus or Xerxes get there? Really, by the way, he's, he's, I'll say this in the next point, he's, he's pretty big stuff. He is king of the world. I mean, he was for a short time. Parenthetically, there was a, an assassination attempt on his life. It was foiled. It sets up another part of the story. But ultimately, you know, Ahasuerus was, uh, was assassinated. He was killed. But, but here's what God says about authority. It says this about King Ahasuerus, who thought he was king of the world, and in some ways he was. This is true of any leader. This is true of President Biden, Kamala Harris. This is true of any leader in the world. You just go down the line. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, whoa, whoa, hold on. Are you talking about the Hitlers of history and God is not the author of sin. He never is. He never will be. But he sets up authorities. He providentially weaves things together to accomplish what he wants to in redemptive history. Let's look at another verse. Daniel, this is out of the Old Testament. But Daniel uh, says that Nebuchadnezzar came to this realization. He thought he was hot stuff. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. You know how this might help you, given the nature of our church. I, I've heard this about other presidents who existed, Trump, Obama, Obama, and others. I've heard Christians say, he's not my president. According to whom... God sets in power, I pray for the man that God has set as my president. Does that mean that I agree with all of his policies? Heavens 
No. But it does mean that I recognize that God didn't finish His plan for redemptive history at the conclusion of the book of Esther. He is still doing a work today. Now, Ahasuerus foolishly believed that he controlled his own life and future. Uh, He had permission to live and to do what he did for a certain amount of time. And again, in in the days ahead, as we go through these chapters, you're going to see how God uses him. Let's go to the second point, could we? The absurdity of unfettered pride in created things. Let's read. I'll read quickly. Verses 3 through 9. In the third year of his reign. You got your Bible out there? He gave a feast. Now watch this. This is almost comical in itself. He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media. Before he took power, it was called Media Persia but now Persia was in the ascendancy, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed his riches of his royal, his royal glory, ha ha, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, he threw a party for his entire army for six months. He wasn't finished. He was going to include everybody, not just the, the people that were important, but for the, just the regular folks. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. Oh, well, still seven in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, watch this. I, this is some of his pomp and all the rest. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement. Of, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds rich. <laughs> Porphyry, marble mother of pearl and precious stones, Let me catch my breath to go on with his greatness and glory. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. The royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Now, I love this. Drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. Drink as little or as much as you want. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as as each man desired. That sounds like today, doesn't it? Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women not to be outdone in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Of course it did. Psalm 49. Those who boast in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches must perish and leave their wealth to others. I said a minute ago, the king, like so many people, thought he was a big deal. In some ways he was. He showed off Get the operative words, his stuff. He showed off his glory. He was showing the greatness of his kingdom. Again, he was forgetting God. He left him out of the equation. Now, his desire to impress was probably due to the fact that he's getting ready to go and fight against Greece, and he wants to to, to get the favor of all of his armies and the armies of the Medes and the Persians before he goes to war. Uh, let, let me just share, you know this, 
unfortunately, great wisdom doesn't come from great wealth. And you and I are responsible, as I said a few moments ago, for being a steward of everything that God has given you. But you are not Lord over it, and you're not to boast as if you owned it. Look look at a couple of verses. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, God said, I will not endure. I have said over and over again from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 25, there are only two religions in the world. The worship of what God has created and the worship of God as the creator. And we're talking about a pagan king. We get it with him, but do we get it with us? That it's right for us to worship the true God and not the things that he's created. He's given those things to us so that we can be stewards and not act as if we own them. Third point, the insanity of drunkenness. Do I really need to talk about this? I mean, after all, we're good Baptists, aren't we? We don't have a problem. Well, I'm, it's in there, so I'm just, and really, it's, it's in there. Verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That means he was drunk. Uh, And there are other verses that will uh, uh, support that. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring, now watch this. the insanity of intoxication, drunkenness, to bring Queen Vashti before the king plus everybody at the party with her royal crown. I'm not going to go to all of the places commentators go. But he just, he was really wrong. In order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. It is insanity for leaders. For leaders political leaders, other leaders to be intoxicated. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. You and I, the Bible says in 1 Peter, we are commanded to be sober-minded. We are reminded in various places that wine, strong drink, or a brawler, whoever is led astray by it is not wise And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to be wise, not foolish. Understand what God's will is. Don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery, excess, dissipation. It's waste. But be filled with the Spirit. The Persians actually thought, this is interesting. They're not the first. They won't be the last. 
They thought that drunkenness, that intoxication brought them closer to the spiritual world. And some of the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11 had a problem with it on occasion. Noah, ooh, look at the, look at the mess made. Lot, good grief. So let me just say it like this. To those students and others, no matter how young or old, we must be very careful not to undermine anything that defines our testimony to the world. Paul said it like this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or build up. Now, did you hear it in the story? Intoxication impairs judgment. Wow, okay, I, I don't even know how much to attack here. I mean, get after. But what happened was in his drunken state, he was showing off. He was showing off everything that was his, quote unquote, which included his trophy wife. Uh, again, uh, uh, commentators go a lot of different directions. I'm just going to say that he exercised very poor judgment on the last day of the feast by saying, let me show you the crown of what is mine. I'll bring out my trophy wife to parade before all of you drunken men. At a minimum, that's poor judgment. It might not surprise you that I share this kind of thing in uh, my, my premarital counseling. I talk about it a lot, how men are to deal with women, and th there's also how women are to deal with their husbands. But, but that, that verse right there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, living with your wives in an understanding manner because they are the, the weaker vessel. Don't, don't, get a, don't get a picture that you're big and... And, and bowed up and strong, and they're not. That, that's, that, that's a picture of handling a piece of fine china as opposed to having the attitude of handling a styrofoam cup. In his drunken state, he was treating his wife like he treated everything else as a thing. not as a fine piece of china to be valued and cared for, valuable, but as a styrofoam cup to be wadded up and thrown away. Uh, oh, but, well, there's another thing. What else happens many times in a drunken state? Says he became very, very angry. A word a word spoken in anger can sometimes lead to a lifetime of sorrow. 
I wrote this down. Somebody said it. Temper, this is a good saying. Temper gets you into trouble. Pride keeps you there. That's a picture of this king. By the way, in chapter 2, verse 1, there's a hint that he was sorry for what he did. We're going to see what he did in just a minute. After these things, the anger of the king had abated. He remembered Vashti and what she had done, what had been decreed against her. I, I, think, I think he was sorry. Too late, law of the Medes and the Persians, it's done. Okay, what was done? The stupidity of listening to man's unwise counsel. That's the next part, 13 through 20. Let me read through this very quickly. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, I'm not sure this is tongue-in-cheek or not. These guys weren't really all that wise. This was the king's procedure. The men next to him, I'm not even going to try. The seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face, they were constantly in front of him, and set first in the kingdom according to the law. That is, what is to be done to King Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimikin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only again. Now watch this. This guy, this guy is, um, I, there's just so much here. Listen, not only against the, the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials. Hmm, that's them. And the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Now, just pause right here. How were they going to know? It's not just automatic. The only way that they could know would be if somebody sent out a royal proclamation, which is a little bit interesting at the least. This very day, oh, the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Hasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia, Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same thing to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, so that everybody will know. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made the king, uh, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed through all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Jeremiah 17, 5, the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Had he been a God follower, maybe he would have consulted God on that. And, and you know, there, there's a safeguard given to us. We're talking about this in our ABF class today. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Wise counselors. If you're, if you're going to seek counsel, go to people who love Jesus. Whew. 
Boy, I, there, there's just, there, there's so much here. You know, this was one of the first, not the only, but it was one of the early cases of, are you ready? Cancel culture. Why did Queen Vashti refuse to go? We don't know. Ladies, it could have been she was standing up for what she believed was right. It could have been. So what did the king do if that was true? And there's an indication that it could have been. He canceled her. Do you think that if you stand up for what is right, that you might be canceled? Governor Stitt stood up last week against an addition to the Oklahoma birth certificate and said, this is not true, what you're adding to it. Just do some research yourself, and he was slammed. He wasn't canceled, but I guarantee that if that person who slammed him could have, he would have been canceled. Don't listen to man's unwise counsel. Last thing, the lunacy of thinking you're in control. Let's finish this up. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 3 says that this advice pleased the king and the princes. They did as uh, Memucan uh, proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, and every man, watch this, every man to be master in his own household and to speak according to the language of his people. Now, here's the irony. He made a mandate for men to do what, with their wives, what he couldn't do with his wife. You men control your wives. Make sure they know you're the boss, even though he was defied by his wife. Is there some irony, maybe even a little bit of humor, in leaders who make mandates that they can't or are unwilling themselves to follow. Oh boy, I'm meddling there. I... Christian, James says it like this, if the Lord wills. That, that's our posture. And so the Christian who understands the providence of God in his or her life is not taken captive by the headlines or the odds or the statistics or the doomsayers. He knows or she knows that Jesus Christ is Lord regardless of what is going on in his or her own personal life. A little boy was playing baseball and a guy, a man walked up and he was sitting there and he said to the little boy, who's winning? Little boy said, the other team. He said, what's the score? 40 to nothing. The man said, well, you must be very discouraged. And the little boy smiled and said, not at all. We haven't come up to bat yet.
Christian, don't get discouraged. God's providence is perfect. And there could be a way in which we haven't come up to bat yet. Father, I thank you for the fact that we can learn from historical books, books that just weave a story together, but it's not ultimately about an ungodly leader of an ungodly government. It's ultimately about you accomplishing for your divine purpose the things that even though with the twists and turns to get there, you are doing a work. Help us to see, Lord, oh God, I cry out to you. I I pray that if there is one here today who does not know you, that his or her greatest existential threat is not climate change. It is to die and to go into eternity without knowing your son Jesus. I pray that that person would see his or her sin, would repent and confess and turn to Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us now as in these few moments we look at the Lord's Supper, look at the elements, partake of the elements, to see that in your divine providence, Calvary was not a day of defeat. It was a day of the greatest victory. And so, Lord, help us now as we partake of the Supper, and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.